welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. Once again, I want to thank all of you that have supported the podcast via Patreon. Your contribution is really appreciated. And if you'd like to support the show for as little as a pound, dollar or euro per episode, you can visit patreon.com forward slash the words matter podcast. So this is the second episode of the qualitative research series. And today I'm speaking with Professor Melanie Burks and Professor Jane Mills who for me are amongst the most influential communicators, educators and developers of grounded theory in the past decade. So it's a real treat to have these superstars of GT contribute to the qualitative series. Melanie is a professor of nursing at James Cook University in Australia. She's published extensively on grounded theory, including numerous textbooks and articles. And her research interests are in the areas of educational accessibility and relevance, and preparation of a well-prepared health workforce. She's committed to promoting quality, evidence-based education and practice through these endeavours. Jane is the Dean and Head of the La Trobe Rural Health School, and she's considered one of Australia and New Zealand's foremost nurse academics, with extensive experience leading and managing teams in both government and tertiary sectors. Her research focuses on rural and public health, health workforce and health system strengthening. Jane's career vision is to contribute to a just society by fostering research and graduates that make a positive difference and believes that education and research are powerful vehicles for change. So in this episode we speak about what grounded theory is and what it isn't. We talk through a brief history of grounded theory, the context in which it arose in the 60s, the underpinning theories and philosophies and the different generations from Glazer to Strauss to Corbin to Charmaz, and how Melanie and Jane came to establish their own position on grounded theory. We talk about grounded theory in the context of other qualitative methodologies, and what aspects and methods are common, and which are somewhat distinctive of grounded theory. We talk about what constitutes a grounded theory study, but also the product of a GT study, namely a grounded theory. And we touch on what makes it grounded, and also what is meant by theory. We talk about the importance of the position of the researcher, including managing bias and preconceptions, reflexivity, and the role of the researcher. And we talk about some of the key methods of grounded theory, including concurrent data generation and data analysis, the coding of data, the importance of memo writing, And we talk about the notion of theoretical sensitivity, which guides theoretical sampling, theoretical coding, and subsequent theory development. Finally, we talk about what constitutes quality in grounded theory, and how we know when we developed a good grounded theory. So as you'll hear, I was really excited to speak with Melanie and Jane. Their first edition of their grounded theory book was a great help to me during my doctoral research and subsequent teaching and supervision around grounded theory. And I was honoured to make a small contribution to their second book, where I wrote a short piece on how I used 
non-participant observation and video recording to facilitate my theory development. And I've linked this and all the relevant books and papers in the show notes. And finally, keep a lookout for the third edition of their book, which is due out next year. So I bring you Professor Melanie Burks and Professor Jane Mills. Melanie, Jane, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Oliver. Thank you. It's our pleasure to be here. This is wonderful. I'm, I'm super excited to speak to you both. As I was telling Jane before, your first book on grounded theory was a real guiding light to, to me towards the middle end of my doctoral studies, where I had read, I think, and kind of consumed every book on GT that was out there, but was still pretty lost and confused. So your book just helped me operationalize the methodology and provide a much needed clarity at a much needed point in my study. So it's fantastic to speak to you both. Thanks, Oliver. It's nice to hear. We often get that type of feedback from, uh, well, you're not a graduate student now, but obviously you were at the time. And that was really what it was all about when we wrote the book. And I think, you know, whilst it would have been wonderful to get Kathy Shamaz or Barney Glazer on the podcast, I don't think there are two people that have communicated or can communicate grounded theory better than you both and develop it as well. So thank you. We're off to a flying start. <laughs> thank you. That's very nice of you to say so. <laughs> so perhaps you could both introduce yourselves and your current academic backgrounds and journey into grounded theory. Okay. Shall I start perhaps? What a what a good idea, Melanie. You go first. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Um, so I am Professor of Nursing with a portfolio of quality and strategy at James Cook University. I've taken this role on uh, relatively recently. For the last 15 years or so, I've been uh, working in the role of head of school or deputy head of school uh, of nursing, uh, mostly in Queensland. But I originally hail from Melbourne and I'm back in Melbourne now where I'm working remotely for James Cook University. Um, my journey into grounded theory started when my PhD supervisor suggested that I use it um, in my PhD. Now, uh, I had worked some years ago with a colleague who had used grounded theory in her honours degree and um, it terrified me. She used to use terminology and she'd say things like Glazer and Strauss, which scared me. And uh, and. I, I avoided it like the plague. I, it, it sounded like it was just far too complex and so I was kind of skirting around it, looking at other methodologies to investigate my um, area of interest in my PhD, but my supervisor rather insisted that it was the way to go and so I think the fact that I was so frightened of it drove me to master it, to try and control it so it couldn't control me. <laughs> so that's that's how I came to be here and, in fact, um, Jane was uh, doing her PhD. She was about a year ahead of me uh, at Monash University in Melbourne, and that's how we came to uh, intersect in our careers. That's right. We've been great friends ever since, so it's a fair while ago now. We were counting up the years, and we won't embarrass ourselves by telling you how long ago it was. It was a while ago. And, um, yeah, uh, similar, I mean, Mel and I shared uh, the same supervisor, so Karen Francis, Professor Karen Francis, who's now happily retired and travelling around Australia in a caravan. But at the time she was Professor of Nursing at Monash. And uh, same story, Karen said, oh, I think you need to use grounded theory. When she came up to talk to me, I was living in Cairns at the time, about what my study might be about. I had an idea what I wanted to investigate. I said, oh, I think you need to go and do this. So I took myself off to the JCU library and I had a little look around and 
found myself a grounded theory book and it was the second edition of um of Strauss and Corbin and I thought oh my goodness me this is very hard really it was really tricky and uh anyway I thought oh I think I'll have to find a supervisor that's got a fair bit of expertise in grounded theory and at JCU at the time there was um Anne Bonner who's now Professor Anne Bonner and uh so she agreed to come onto the team and she had done her PhD on grounded theory as well so Anne um Anne was much more strict than Karen and said right you need to read all of the grounded theory texts sequentially, so from the very start to now. And uh, so off I went. So I started with discovery and uh, made my way through and methodically read them all, analysed them all, took a whole heap of notes, which I promptly, I think, shared with Melanie in the end. And, uh, yeah, that was uh, how I came into grounded theory. But it wasn't particularly easy for either of us because we had to really teach ourselves. And the textbooks at the time were not exactly what you call user-friendly. So uh, thus, when we had finished our PhD, Mel came up with a bright idea about writing our own book. And so uh, that's what we did. Yeah, and I think um, we would now recommend uh, not to start at the beginning and read through, but to start with our book <laughs> <laughs> and then, and you know, read it, use it as a reference manual to work through those areas, those aspects of grounded theory that you are seeking more information about. Yes, not something I'd recommend either. It was quite torturous, really. Somebody had to do it, though, so that was me. I was the lucky duck that did it. And both of your experiences touch on these different flavours of grounded theory, which emerged from the 60s. And you're right, it's kind of a, it was a rite of passage to have to read every single one and then still be confused at the end of Strauss and Corbin's <laughs> book. And then you got to Shymaz's book and think, well, that will, you know, that will simplify things. And it didn't really, for me, it was a really lovely read, you know, moving the epistemology on, but certainly... In terms of operationalizing it and how to do it, it wasn't entirely helpful. So, um, so no, I think you're completely right. Start, start to your book and then refer back to the historical text for context. Well, that's how long ago I did mine because Cathy uh, Shamaz published her first book the year I finished. So I didn't even have the benefit of being able to read Cathy's lovely prose, which is rather warm and friendly, that's for sure. So who wants to define or say what grounded theory is? That's the unenviable task, I think. But there's no two better people to at least give us some description or shape to what it is, whether it's a collection of methods or methodology or approach or something else. I'm happy to take that one. And it's funny because my father often asks me um, the same, you know, what, what exactly is grounded theory? And my father's not a researcher, not an academic. He worked in the building industry. And so, you know, I, I was thinking about it today. I could actually probably use a building analogy uh, to explain it to him. It, it's like architecture for research. Uh, when you're building a house, you decide what you want your end product to be. So, for example, if you wanted to build uh, a house in Art Nouveau style, you would have to choose materials and you would have to um, carry out processes uh, you know, th through the building to produce that end product, to produce that goal. And what we want in grounded theory is uh, a, a theory as the end product a theory that has explanatory power. And so in order to do that, we have to use methods and we have to use them in a way that's going to lead to that end product. So um, the, it, it is a, it is an, I believe it's a methodology, there's a debate around that because methodology is a philosophy of methods and I do believe there's a philosophy underpinning the use of the methods in grounded theory. But it, it's about the methods that you use. You, you have to use all of the methods 
correctly. And, there's, and when I say correctly, there's many different ways in which we can apply ground theory methods, but you have to use them all. You have to use them properly. You know, you can't produce ground theory without doing theoretical sampling, for example. You can't do it without having theoretical sensitivity. Um, so it's a collection of methods that, when used properly, will produce, can produce an end product of a theory with explanatory power. Um, Mel and I often uh, differ on quite a few things, which people find quite surprising because, you know, we've written so many things together over the years. Um, I, I think that um, there are a number of different methodologies that inform the use of grounded theory methods. But as Mel said, there is really a set of methods that you have to use if you actually want to come up with a grounded theory. I mean, what it's not is um, qualitative descriptive analysis. And quite often, as uh, we're all aware, um, papers will get published um, under the, the nomenclature of grounded theory when in actual fact they are really just a descriptive analysis and it is um, it hinges on that whole sense of process and movement uh, through the actual theory itself in terms of um, actually demonstrating that it is a grounded theory. Uh, so, yeah, I think, um, you know, there is probably more about what it's not that's unclear and, and what it is is very clear. Yeah, I think you're right. What it's not, it's not a generic recipe for research. Uh, it doesn't aim to simply describe or explore. It's about that ability to explain phenomena. And that's why there is the emphasis on process, because process is about a series of events leading to an explanation. And there are um, definitely methods and techniques from grounded theory that have been adopted by other research methodologies. But as I said before, if, if these characteristic methods aren't used properly to generate theory as an end product, it's not grounded theory. And you can see why, because the methods, if we ignore the, the methodology and the philosophy underpinning the methods, the methods themselves are so useful. You know, the iterative nature, back and forth, the different coding strategies, theoretical sensitivities. You can see why other qualitative methodologies kind of pinch or borrow or researchers just kind of plug these methods in and, and then label it grounded theory. But the methods themselves are just really useful techniques to 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 gather data, to get some purchase on, on on the data. So I suppose you could see it as some sort of testament to the value and usefulness that other qualitative researchers find in the ground of three methods. And so it's a compliment, if you like. But there's nothing wrong with that either, Oliver. I mean, I've, Mel and I have both supervised students using different research designs and um, and have often borrowed from grounded theory methods in order to be able to um, give students, I suppose, guidance around the use of methods in, in other designs. I mean, case studies are a good example of uh, where I've done quite a lot of work with students and we've used a number of the different methods very successfully. So there's no problem with that. Uh, no shame in borrowing grounded theory methods, but just don't call what you've produced at the end of grounded theory if it's not. And so in summary, we can say it's, it's a collection of methods, but it doesn't stop there, or the definition doesn't stop there, but rather what supports those methods is a particular set of, or particular theory or, or philosophy, which underpins the reason why those methods are implemented with the intent of developing a grounded theory. Is And is it the case that intent is sufficient, you know, the aspiration to develop a grounded theory is enough for it to be a grounded theory because not everyone gets there right sometimes you might strive for a substantive theory but actually the findings are descriptive and somewhat superficial but you've 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 had you've given it your best go you've implemented those methods yeah i think and you and then what you've come up with is um qualitative descriptive analysis which even glazer says is is good and in fact there are times when what you want to do is describe and explore a phenomenon and that's fine 
But if you if your intent is to explain what's going on in a situation, then uh, you need to actually have that explanatory outcome, and that's where the theory comes in. So uh, to answer your question, no, intent is not enough. Intent is you can intend um, to, you know, if I go back to my house analogy, you know, I intended to build an Art Nouveau style, but I've got, you know, Federation fretwork out the front or I've got, you know, um, uh, a pitch roof. Uh, which are inconsistent with the with the design. So uh, where my intent might have been to end up in a certain place, then I, I, uh, if unless I do that, I can't claim that I, I have actually ended up where I said I was, you know, I haven't achieved the goal. So while it's still a house you can live in, it's not what you set out to achieve. So the, the risk of moving into your morning and my evening, the history of grounded theory and where it arose and how it arose, and we haven't gone to go into too much detail, but it is important because it tells us something about the methods that are employed and some of the differences in terms of the approaches which are on hand for researchers. So, Jane, do you want to say a little bit about how grounded theory came about? Sure. I mean, it, it was um, it came out of the 1960s, and um, and really at that time there was, particularly in sociology, quite a pushback against what we might consider to be uh, the scientific method. So using a deductive approach to research design. And so Strauss and, and Glazer were working together on a competitive grant that Strauss had got. He was over at the uh, University of California in San Francisco. He's actually in the School of Nursing, which uh, we're always very proud of. And um, he he had got this grant to investigate death and dying and so employed Barney Glazer on it. I mean, Barney had a much more quantitative background than um, Anselm Strauss. Anselm Strauss uh, was, a, you know, a sociologist of the old school from the Chicago school and so really uh, saw the world uh, through very much a symbolic interactionist lens and certainly very much through a, through a pragmatist uh, lens as well and which really influences, I suppose, the you know, the utility of grounded theory methods and the design itself. And so basically uh, together they worked on this study and developed some an inductive approach uh, to theory generation. And so at the end of that study they actually uh, wrote up the, you know, the book Discovery of Grounded Theory. Of course, interestingly, there's always some unsung heroes in there and, um, and there was a woman called Jenny Quinoli-Bent uh, who... Um, I might not have pronounced that properly. Benoit, Benoit, not sure. But she was uh, she was a nurse as well. Had been working on that study with them, and in actual fact, um, history now tells us had been quite influential in the development of grounded theory methods at the time. So yeah, it's uh, which is a bit of a sad story, really, because of course she has been largely unrecognised. You know, when we talk about the history of grounded theory, and of course, you know, that developed then through the seventies. Barney uh, left the academy, went off to what did he do, Melanie? Went off and developed property, or did something along those lines, didn't he? Yeah, he, he I know he was in property development. Mm. Yeah, property development. Uh, but of course, um, kept writing, kept publishing, and um, and. Strauss kept working at the university and, and of course, um, ended up with quite a number of PhD candidates, one of which was Juliet Corbin. And uh, together they produced um, their book, The Basics of, of Qualitative Research. And, of course, that was actually uh, written for PhD candidates, so a little bit uh, like Melanie and myself. I think at the time they thought that maybe they would write a text that could guide PhD students in the use of grounded theory methods. 
And that is probably why that book is quite prescriptive. Uh, in saying that, it's also why students found it very useful and it ended up being, a, a, you know, sort of a runaway success. And, uh, and of course, Barney Glazer pushed back against that. And his rebuttal of that text is quite famous. It's also very scathing. I went back to it again the other day because, of course, Mel and I are doing the third edition of our book at the moment, so revisiting that, that chapter and having a look at what he wrote. Um, so he was really quite unkind at the time and, of course, that then led to this supposed split. But, in fact, they stayed friends the whole of their lives and um, Anson Strauss dedicated many books to Barney Glazer and, um, and vice versa. So I think that probably uh, their disagreements were largely uh, philosophical as opposed to personal. I mean, in the 80s, uh, a lot of their students were out using grounded theory methods. So that was, I think, the time of Cathy Shamaz and Adele Clark, uh, although Adele Clark did her PhD a little later uh, than um, that first sort of tranche of grounded theorists. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they, they were really working hard and doing lots of research at the time, not really publishing about methodology, but there are some findings papers from that time. And it's really uh, not until the 1990s that we start to see uh, the beginning of a proliferation of textbooks around grounded theory. And so, so at that time, 67 or the, or the 60s, it was what was unique about grounded theories when it began to operationalise qualitative methods, which had previously just been either not really well respected within social sciences, or it was all just quite mysterious how people, how qualitative research obtained the findings that they did. So that was why that book was quite unusual, quite significant. Well, it was, and it was also a departure from ethnography. And so, you know, how Becker's, um, I think it was how Becker's, uh, Boys in White, was probably one of the seminal texts of qualitative research findings that came out in the early 1960s. And of course, that's an ethnographic uh, text. Yeah, if I can just add to that, um, yeah, you're quite right. I mean, one of my supervisors once described grounded theory as the bridge between quantitative and qualitative research. And I think what it does is it, it actually has the structure that, or the control that you'd expect in a quantitative study. But for people who want to do uh, research in the social sciences, it has that, um, in, we know that we, we, we don't want to have that level of control. We want to allow the data to uh, direct where the study goes. Hmm. We can get to maybe your current position and how you've developed the methodology, and but we might just quickly summarise, if we can, that different versions that are out there, not all of them, of course, but the, the most well-known. So the early texts in the 60s and Glaze's following work is defined as traditional or classic grounded theory where it's remaining true to the to the original methodology. And people have said that it's somewhat situation positivism, so it looks to discover theory rather than construct it, as you and obviously Shamaz would advocate that it's this co-construction of theory, whereas Glazer just kind of finds this stuff in the in the data somewhere, some objective thing. Well, yeah, I mean, we've written a lot about that over the years. I think probably though we've really come to a position now where we try and move away from actually classifying grounded theory as different types. Because as we talked about earlier, it's a common set of methods. I think it's about how you think about yourself and how you position yourself as a researcher that counts. And you're quite right. Uh, Barney Glazer does indeed position himself as a post-positivist. So he talks an awful lot about emergence and uncovering and discovering. But it's also in the way that he uses the methods as well that demonstrates that rather post-positivist 
bent. So it, it, he doesn't believe in recording interviews, for instance, or transcriptions. Um, so the way he codes is quite different uh, than if you were working with a more of a co-constructionist approach. And of course, I think that's why Kathy Shemess's book struck chord with so many people because it provided this way of thinking around how the reality really of the interview. Because of course, the interview is not the only way of, of uh, generating data or collecting data in a grounded theory study. And Mel, I know it's got some really good thoughts around this, but you know, the interview is, I suppose, in many ways, the most common way of working with participants. And so that idea that you could in some way be objective or separated or removed um, from the other person that's in the room with you, or nowadays on the other end of Zoom, you know, was really quite abhorrent to, to many of us. So actually, I think that's where Kathy Shamaz's work was pretty important. Mel, you got any thoughts you want to add? No, I don't think so. I think you've covered that pretty well. Um, I, I think we do tend to talk about um, generations of grounded theorists now rather than genres or types. We often get students contacting us and saying, oh, I wish you could explain it to me better. How do I know who to choose? How do I understand the distinction? And I think the, one of the reasons that people get so confused is that there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of um, shared philosophies. There's a lot of shared approaches. Um, and what Jane and I encourage people to do is to do what works. If you can provide a rationale for the way in which you've used the methods that's consistent with your philosophical position and you end up generating theory, then I, I don't know that we can uh, question um, the approach that you've used. And, and are you able to situate grounded theory next to other qualitative methodologies? And I suppose that might also help people as to whether they choose to do a grounded theory study in the first place. So what is it about GT or what is GT good at looking at or developing theory about? We know that it's often used in cases where little is known about the area of study. So, um, and that, that could be said for other qualitative methodologies. And all qualitative methodologies have their place, they serve a purpose, but just as grounded theory doesn't attempt to explore lived experience, phenomenology doesn't offer explanatory power, and nor does action research or narrative inquiry. These all serve essential functions in the generation of knowledge, but those functions don't include generating theory. So in the context of these other methodologies, grounded theory is quite unique. And I think one of the reasons that we tend to rely on it in, particularly if you look at the amount of grounded theories that have been published in the area of healthcare, it is a very popular approach in healthcare. And I think that's because those of us that work in the healthcare context, uh, we are used to relying so much on hard facts, blood pressure measurements, drug dosages. But in reality, we work with individuals. So uh, I think one of the reasons that grounded theory is really popular in, um, in the healthcare professions is because it gives us the structure, a structure that we feel comfortable operating within while accepting that working with people on issues that concern them is not actually hard science. So it gives us a, a sense of control in uh, a context that can otherwise appear chaotic. And I think that's less the case with other methodologies, although, as we were saying before, a lot of the grounded theory methods have actually become quite mainstream, even in these other methodologies. I mean, I'd like to add to that too, though. I mean, really, Oliver, it's about the question that people ask. And so, you know, the research, the choice of the research design is is absolutely fundamental 
to the question that you ask. First you start with the question and then you work out what the design is going to be. And, you know, the most common mistake people make is that they say, I want to do a grounded theory. So I'm going to do it. So I say, what's your research question? Well, I don't know yet. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, what might you ask a question about? Well, I'm really interested in the lived experience of someone. And as Mel said, well, that's going to be a phenomenological study. So it is all about the questions that you ask as to the design that you choose. And when you see where a so-called grounded theory has gone a bit wrong, where people have actually ended up, um, you know, generating quite a nice often uh, qualitative descriptive analysis. So they've, they've themed things, they've come up with themes, you know, have done these sorts of things. What they've done is they haven't asked the right questions in the first place. So it is about explaining something. That's the bottom line. It is really about explaining a process or a phenomenon. It's about explaining something that has sort of motion and movement. And often they'll come to us and they have got a question. You know, they've, they've developed a question, but it isn't a question that's seeking an explanation at the end of it. They just heard that grounded theory was a good And I've had people ring me up. I've heard that grounded theory is a good methodology. Can you give me some advice on how to use it in this study? What is your study about? I want to explore this or I want to... And, and often lived experience is, is yeah, yeah, I want to, I want to, um, I want to examine mm. this or investigate that. But what is your end game? What is your, what is your outcome that you're hoping to achieve? And the way in which that question is asked is informed by the the, the theory such as symbolic interactionism or pragmatism. So if you're if you're that fluidity in in process and movement and dynamism, in a way, in the way in which you conceptualise the research problem will frame how you ask that question and then determine whether or not it's suitable for a GT study. So if you're looking at decision-making, for example, it's an easy example, if you view that as a social, interactive, you know, psychosocial process, then it would make reasonable sense to, to use grounded theory as a way to understand that. Whereas if you're viewing it as a, a lived experience of what it's like to be a decision-maker, that wouldn't lend itself at all well to a grounded theory study. No, that's absolutely right, Oliver. So it really is, um, and often people are very philosophically naive. Mel wrote a great chapter in one of our other books, which actually, you know, some people might find quite helpful with this comparing of different qualitative methodologies, which is qualitative methodologies, a practical guide, which I still think, I think you might still be able to get it. But um, that, you know, that whole question about what is philosophy and, and how does it work uh, was something that Mel wrote a really great chapter about, and we're actually um, revisiting that. But I, I should let you talk about that, Mel, not me. <laughs> oh, thank, and I, I think you for saying it's a really great chapter. It's because I'm I'm a I'm a real, very much a black and white thinker, and uh, and so these grey areas that we cover in qualitative research and, and in philosophy in particular really um, I, I find that make my head hurt. And so what I wanted to do was produce a chapter that helped people understand it. Um, in, in overcome the, the the concern that I had in, in that just to me it just seemed so ethereal it was too hard to grasp and so it's really about operationalizing philosophy and understanding what its relevance is uh, to research because what a lot of people don't think about is that for example if you're studying a doctor of philosophy there has to be an element of philosophy so there has to be some discussion of the way that you see the world and the way that you believe knowledge is constructed in order to inform what you then investigate, how you investigate it, and the influence of your own philosophical position on your analysis and the, the outcome of those processes. So, so two things I wanted to ask. One was 
related to the, we could maybe tackle them both at the same time. One was grounded theory, what the grounded bit means. It's probably worth mentioning about what what is meant by grounded. And then I think also the second part is theory. We've all been talking about developing theory. What do you mean by theory? How do we know when we've got it? And is it is is it something that's um, just a, a presupposition? Is it is it hard facts? A theory. Obviously, theory can be used in many different ways. Um, so, who wants to go first with perhaps just explaining what's meant by grounded, seeing as it's in the title of the podcast and the methodology? Well, I'll do the grounded, and Mel can do the theory. How's that sound? <laughs> Good, perfect. So, the grounded really is the idea that you are beginning with the data. And so particularly with the initial coding of a, of a grounded theory transcript, whatever it is that you do to generate or collect that first tranche of data in a, in a grounded theory study, it has to be um, translated essentially into transcript or into some sort of text in order for you to open it up and code it. And it's that very initial sort of first step that really grounds your analysis in the data. And that's what the grounded theory bit is. So as opposed to a traditional scientific method where you might have actually uh, come up with some sort of proposition that you actually want to test, which is a deductive methodology, a grounded theory study is about starting with the data and actually building theory from the data. And so it's grounded in the data. So you're not actually trying to test an extant theory in the first instance. So the grounded bit is all about that that uh, first initial foray, I think, really, into the data. And that's why we try as, as much as possible to, re- to use in vivo codes, so words of the participants themselves, so that you, because I know in other methodologies that's not often the case, you, you might start abstracting immediately from that, that first transcript, but in grounded theory we try as much as possible to stay grounded even through the, the various phases of analysis. So in a good grounded theory you could actually trace the theory back to the raw data. And sometimes your categories may actually be titled with an expression from your participants. So it's it's really represented higher up. Yeah, ideally. That's right. That's the end goal. So the theory bit, Mel, go on. You do the theory bit. Got the easy bit. (laughs) Um, A theory is a set of interrelated concepts that forms a framework that helps us to understand something. So, you know, the most common grounded theory that we often cite because it is so well known is um, Kubler-Ross's uh, stages of dying, and um, and so you know you can you can actually you, you look at that theory and you can actually understand what or it's used often as an explanation or an explanation scheme for other forms of, of grief, not just facing death. Um, you know, you've lost your job, you've divorced, you had a leg amputated. So it's a framework for helping us to understand what's going on. So we often talk about someone who's going through or they're in denial and they've gone through an hour acceptance. So, so that's an example of a, a theory that uh, I think is probably one of the easier ones for us to use as an example because a lot of theories are quite abstract. But what we want in a grounded theory is something that makes sense. You know, we talk about it having um, relevance and fit and it needs to work um, and it has to resonate with the people uh, who are most impacted by um, the phenomena that you've actually studied. So ideally a, um, a theory will make sense. Uh, and Jane and I, uh, when we talk about theoretical development or um, theoretical integration or developing theory as an end product, we promote very strongly the use of storyline 
storyline was actually uh, introduced, I think, in the 1990 Strauss and Corbin text. And after um, Glazer's rebuttal, uh, it, it actually um, f- fell away. I think there was a, they, they spent a bit of time um, trying to uh, recover from that and address a lot of the stuff that Glazer had said. So um, storyline kind of fell away and uh, we've always felt that it's a really valuable way of not only um, presenting a grounded theory and uh, ex- uh, having that explanation in a narrative um, but also it's a form of analysis in itself and we've recently uh, had a chapter published in the latest Sage Handbook of Grounded Theory. So when you uh, when we look at developing theory uh, in a grounded theory study, that's what we're looking to do. We're, we're looking for something that makes sense to the reader that are the, the concepts that are generally the categories that have come out of your analysis but they're woven together in a way that tells a story that accounts for all of the experiences of the participants in that study. And uh, um, we then apply theoretical coding to that. Either these are codes that become evident in uh, the storyline itself or it's a frame that currently exists that absolutely fits the story that you've told and provides that additional explanatory power. Yeah, I I was going to say, I remember reading uh, Shamaz's first book, I think it was, The Constructing Ground of Theory, and she makes a distinction between objectivist theory or, or positivist notions of theory which look to predict and there's a real focus on predicting and, I guess, causations related to that, whereas interpretivist ideas around theory are much more around, as you said, understanding the the social context and phenomena involved. And I always, I've always been kind of battling with that because a good constructed grounded theory, which seeks to understand, would probably have some predictive power too if you can have a good, rich understanding of how people are operating within their environments you would be able to probably have a sense of how others might behave in in the future. I recognise that's not your focus, but whether it's a pointless contrast. No, I totally agree with you, Oliver. And there are, you know, that's one of the things where, you know, we would disagree with uh, Shamaz about that. So in actual fact, and particularly when you think about the potential utility of formal grounded theories too. So the idea of actually doing, you know, taking an existing grounded theory and then trying to apply it in a different context and see whether it, it still holds true there. So in fact, what you are doing is predicting that in actual fact, it will hold true. Uh, so, you know, that is, um, I think that's probably a, a false dichotomy, the idea that if you're a constructivist grounded theory, that you, theorists that you would not consider that your end product could in fact predict uh, something that might happen in another context. But I think that's a problem with qualitative research generally, is that we, we often, we've been trained to say that uh, this this uh, qualitative study, this is a qualitative study, and so the results are not generalizable. But we don't talk about the transferability of the learnings. We don't talk about how um, we can take what has happened in this context and have an idea of how something in a similar context may play out. So I think that's all about um, qualitative research being told to get back in its box. Well, I'd agree about that. But the other thing about that is that one of the sort of standards for assessing the quality of a grounded theory, if you take Barney's um, sort of maxim, is this notion of modifiability. So in actual fact, there is always an expectation that you could take an existing theory from a particular context and modify it for a separate one. So that notion of transferability of learning. Otherwise, um, you know, you have to really question the utility of it if you can't, you can't actually uh, attempt to do that. I've 
done a series of podcasts with philosophers of causation. It was called the Cause Health Series. And simply put, the, the current conception of causation is around human uh, causation, where it's got to be repetitive and frequent. So it underpins most of quantitative research. Anyway, they've got a slightly different view of causation. And they're advocating that actually qualitative research does have something to say about causation in the single case. So it's that individuality of the person to understand how causation may arise in a single individual. You've got to have that narrative and that story because it's pertinent to that individual. But but the problem with prediction is that it's so associated with positivism and qualitative researchers tend to to kind of get their you know, niggers in a twist about being by making claims around prediction or causation. Well, I do wonder, though, in the current environment that we find ourselves in, whether people can actually afford to continue to take that approach. You know, we are in a much more competitive grant environment than ever before. And while qualitative research, I think, is much more accepted now, and there is in many countries an expectation that there will be a qualitative element to grant proposals, um, you know, I think actually there has to be this sort of sense about transferability, which I think is probably a better word to use for qualitative research than causation and what that might mean in order to um, actually justify the use of public funds. I think if we can, if we could just go through some of the key methods, seeing as they, they contribute to this idea around grounded theory, they're, they're necessary but not sufficient. I think that's how it's explained in philosophy, that you've got to have some of these methods, but them in themselves don't necessarily equal a grounded theory. So if we go through things like researcher bias and how researchers should manage those preconceptions and the tension with theoretical sensitivity. I think that all of us uh, are inherently biased. And I think the fact that we're interested in qualitative research means that we acknowledge that fact. Uh, the question really is more about what we do with that, that sort of insight and actually having that insight in the first place in order to make a decision about what to do about the insight, I think is really important. So memoing is one of the methods in grounded theory that really allows you to be able to expose your own preconceived ideas about a particular situation. And it's one of the things that we work with students to start doing from the very get-go. Mel's actually the expert on memoing, has written a couple of different journal articles on this. Um, and certainly we talk about it a lot in the book. And we, we um, you know, we use the analogy of a, a set of cogs and memoing being the lubricant that makes the cogs go around together. And memoing is really the way that we can promote reflexivity in researchers and the idea of actually having insight and then acting on insight. So that's just important, I think, to be aware and to understand that that is part and parcel of uh, being a qualitative researcher. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just what it is. Uh, what you have to do is be able to manage it. And so that's uh, very important. Certainly in terms of, um, I, I mean, a lot of our experiences with um, PhD candidates that come as mature age students and so therefore have a life history as often as clinicians or managers or leaders in their field. And so they have some very firmly held ideas about what it is that they imagine they're going to find when they go out. And, and half the time it's about trying to debunk the idea that they are some sort of expert. And Having them being open to the, you know, the wonderment of the research process is really important. And so, and it is often, you know, a wondrous experience. And many, we've had many experiences where students have had 
quite firm ideas, even though they're like, oh, no, 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 we won't let that influence us. But in actual fact, you know, they come back in and they go, oh, my goodness, it wasn't like that at all when I got out there and I actually, you know, was sitting as a researcher in that space and um, starting to work with participants or, importantly, observe. So often having that period of observation in the field is something which I really like students to do. I encourage them to have that sort of ethnographic element often because that quiet reflection and that observation sometimes really leads to that level of insight that they need uh, in order to try and I suppose approach the data in as open a mind frame as possible. And I think the expression is an open mind but not an empty head. (laughs) That's always a good idea. Melanie, do you want to say something about how the literature it is sometimes used and there's the you know, debates around the role of the literature and grounded theory and then it front loads theory and people get too attached to it and what researchers should do with the, the literature beforehand, where they look at it, don't look at it, look at it a little bit. Well, I think, you know, um, what Jane said about managing uh, preconceptions and managing bias, it, it also comes down to how we manage the requirements for undertaking research often and um, formal award courses. So you're doing a doctoral study, there's often an expectation that you're going to do this background work. Um, there's unfortunately still this traditionalist position that you you um, you need to go out and do you find a theoretical framework and uh, establish your um, uh, what's already been done and build on that. And of course we're not attempting to to test existing theory. We're, the intent in ground theory is to um, generate inductively. Uh, theory and um, and uh, and that produces the new knowledge. What what I encourage students to do is to look at the context because we we do we don't talk about literature reviews when we're publishing qualitative research. For example, we talk about background. What is the context in which um, this study is going to take place? What do we know about the general area? Uh, and obviously, you're going to encounter studies that do cross into your proposed area of study, but. Uh, as Jane has mentioned, you manage those, and that's about declaring your assumptions in the form of memos, um, it being reflexive in how you react to what you find. Uh, and uh, and it, the, the truth is you can't just live in a vacuum uh, and hope that nobody tells you anything about the area that you're studying because it's going to create preconceptions that are going to contaminate your work. It, that's not how it works. So we in, realistically, we have to meet the requirements for any of the programs we enrol in, uh, and that often means that we have to do the background work, but it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, looking specifically at the area of study. We talk about reading around the study and your literature you can take that form. And I think just to articulate that tension is that the issue is that as we as we described the grounded part of grounded theory is that it's essentially new theory developed from data rather than testing existing theory, whereas the literature is just saturated with existing theory. And if you start too much with that or or use that to force your your data analysis and subsequent theory, then really you're just testing existing theory. So that's the, yeah. the tension, isn't it? That's right. You're not you don't have that broad area of wonderment that you're looking at exploring because you've narrowed it considerably with um, your exploration of the literature that, that's currently out there. And Jane, perhaps you could just move on seamlessly to theoretical sensitivity because that's also related. That there's a there's a kind of sweet spot, isn't there, with how much with how much um, wonderment you have, which is also tinged with kind of insights and knowing what to listen out for, knowing what to what seems to be significant, but not too significant or too insightful. Otherwise, you're you're perhaps forcing. 
Well, I think you shouldn't be frightened of theoretical sensitivity and I I think it is around, um, we talk about it as being following the clues in the data and, of course, your level of insight is directly related to your life experience. And as I said, you know, and as Mel said, we don't come to um, particularly uh, higher degree studies um, as a tabula rasa. Uh, you know, it doesn't work like that. And so you do often have quite a degree of insight into the field. I think the thing that's quite important about theoretical sensitivity is to understand that it's not static, that it's something that develops. And it certainly does develop really at quite a st- sort of steep rate really during that um, whole process of concurrent data collection and analysis. So that is, you know, and then theoretical sampling. So your theoretical sensitivity is directly tied to concurrent data collection or generation and analysis. Your theory, you become more sensitive to the data. You have greater insights. The more you memo, the more you start to think through those insights and you start to develop your own sensitivity to what might be coming next. You're thinking around where might I go, where might I sample uh, in order to get insights or fresh insights into uh, my developing theory. So the idea is to sort of, um, it is a very fluid process, but you really need to embrace uh, theoretical sensitivity. And every single discussion that you have with your supervisory team or with your uh, partner or your poor friends who have to be bored to tears listening to, to your experience, because of course we know it can be all quite all-consuming when you're in that phase of uh, data generational collection and analysis. Um, and so you really wanted to talk it through all the time. All of those conversations, every single diagram you draw, every single memo you write will contribute to your theoretical sensitivity. So it's something to be celebrated because at the end of your study, uh, what you want to be is an expert on your area. And uh, expertise does not come cheap. It takes an awful lot of time, effort and work in order to be able to develop that level of expertise. But it's also critical to have theoretical sensitivity in order to develop your your theory at the end of the day because if you, theoretical sensitivity is the ability to recognise in the data what is going to end up in your theory or what has relevance for your developing theory so that you can then build on that. And if you you don't um, do as Jane has said uh, and find ways of developing your theoretical sensitivity through memoing and uh, and other um, application of the grounded theory methods. And you're not going to be able to do that. And you will have no choice but to rely on preconceptions and extant theories to construct what is then not an inductive theory. So it's critical from that perspective. It will also take you back around, you know, and and that's the other thing is that people mustn't feel too discouraged about the fact that sometimes you go back you know, to those early interviews and you see them in a whole new light uh, once you progress through your analysis and your theory starting to develop and the categories are starting to get um, denser and, you know, more interesting and more dimensionalised and you go back and you think, oh, my goodness, I didn't know that or I didn't recognise it the first time around. And quite often I have students that will completely recode those initial interviews and go back again. So just because you've coded an interview once doesn't mean that's it, you know, you go back down the track and you can see it in a whole new light. And I think it's worth just dwelling a little bit on that theoretical sampling because it, it's, I think it's unique to grounded theory or certainly it's kind of closely tied to it. And it's so important that it's not purposeful sampling. It's not just getting a diverse range of views that you start out with, but it's sampling of cases or data 
in order to meet the needs of your theory development, to, to fill in gaps and holes and to give shape and to address questions or hypotheses that you have around your your theory development. So, Melanie, do you want to say something about what theoretical sampling is and how it isn't just purposeful sampling? Mm. Well, theoretical sampling is following the leads in your data to get more data that will build help you build your theory. One of the examples I use often is I had a student who was looking at um, first trimester miscarriages in rural hospitals, and she wanted to explore the process of care of these particular women. And uh, she got ethics clearance. It's a very sensitive topic, of course. So she got ethics clearance for uh, to interview the women and to interview the nurses who cared for these women. And what she found from these interviews were the partners of the women were mentioned by the nurses and the partners were mentioned by the women themselves. And so she followed those leads and sought out the partners to ask them um, to, the questions that would help to them progress further um, and further develop the theory. Mm. Uh, but it's not, it's theoretical sampling is not just about uh, completing an interview and then analysing that interview and then deciding, well, who do I need to talk to next? It's also about what do you ask those people? And sometimes theoretical sampling can occur in an interview. It could happen in your first interview. You're talking to someone and they say something and it's not something you've even considered exploring, but suddenly because of the theoretical sensitivity that you have even at that stage, you recognise that this is an important concept and then you pursue it. So you ask a question you might never have intended to ask and that that's a process that builds and it's I, I think it is quite unique to grounded theory and it's critical to the grounding because you're, you're building on every question you ask, every interview that you undertake or every, every um, data uh, collection episode that you have is building on the last one and so you have confidence that your theory is grounded in the interval data because you can follow the trail. What would be some of the key pieces of advice that you would give students or researchers either currently involved with grounded theory or contemplating embarking on one? Well, I think that um, the most important piece of advice I've got is to really be careful about constructing that initial research question and then making a balanced choice about your design because it may well not be a grounded theory study. So really think about that in the first instance. If it is a grounded theory question that you're asking, then you have to be confident enough to know that you don't need to choose some sort of side. You know, we um, definitely take a very agnostic approach to this and um, it is more about understanding where you position yourself philosophically, what you value the most, how, you know, how you consider truth, you know, what is that for you and then, you know, what does that mean in terms of your research question that you've asked? And then that will give you some guidance about how to think about your research design. The methods themselves are really the methods. And at the recent webinar that we, um, we participated in that was run by the Grounded Theory Institute, um, that was the general agreement um, from all so-called sides of the Grounded Theory um, family uh, that actually the methods are common, the methods are the same. It's how you think about them and then how you use them that differs. And it's not necessarily right or wrong. There's there's none of that. It's just about making a conscious choice and then um, really sort of working with that and and actually making sure that you're writing about that and you're thinking about that in terms of how you um, interact with participants, how you're thinking about the data, the sorts of things that you're interested in looking for uh, and prioritising in the data. 
So I think that's, um, you know, maybe just my my big piece of advice would be is just don't be too hidebound about the whole thing. It's not about choosing sides. It's actually about um, doing your own grounded theory and um, and thinking a bit more like a third-generation grounded theorist, which is in a very open uh, and inclusive way. Mel, what would you say? Yeah, I would say don't get bogged down in the politics of it. Um, I think what you said about not choosing a side is important. Uh, get a mentor. Uh, have somebody who who you trust, who understands grounded theory. We often get contacted by students who who have a supervisory panel, and there may be someone on there who claims to be an expert in grounded theory, but they're struggling because they they only know um, first generation approaches to grounded theory, or they, they love um, uh, Strauss and Corbett. That's fine, but I think that those approaches don't necessarily well, they don't suit every problem that a student might want to explore. And so um, you need to have someone who can guide you in, in the direction that you need to go consistent with your philosophical position and the purpose of your study. But the most important piece of advice, I think, is to memo from the outset. Memo from day one, from your, the time you start thinking. And this applies, it doesn't matter what sort of research you're doing, qualitative, quantitative, grounded theory or otherwise. Use memos as a way of exploring your thinking. It will feel, as it did for me, really uncomfortable at first you know, I used to write down, met with supervisors to date, it was okay, decided on ethics application. And, you know, within a few months I was writing, had my supervision meeting, oh, my supervisors are driving me mad, they keep changing their mind. And it's it's a safe space for you to explore your thinking. But it's also, it's where you establish your audit trail. It's where you record your decision-making processes. It's where the uh, analysis Actually, you know, it's the powerhouse of grounded theory. I think it's the engine room of grounded theory, um, the memos, the, the process of memoing. And practically those advanced memos, as they're rendered and written and rewritten, become your findings chapter or section or whatever it might be of your of your paper, your thesis. So it serves a, a practical purpose too, that it gets stuff down on paper. It does. That would otherwise be potentially lost. Yes, all those bright ideas that you have in the middle of the night or when you're in the shower, you have to get out and write yourself a memo afterwards. Very important. Melanie, Jane, thank you so much for talking us through Grounded Theory. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Oliver. It's our pleasure, Oliver. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.